0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Belina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience, uh, with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Robert Dessault, the co-author of Natural History of Color, the Science Behind What We See and how we see it. Is color a phenomenon of science or a thing of art? Over the years, color has dazzled, enhanced, and clarified the world we see, embraced through the experimental palettes of painting, the advent of the color photograph, technicolor pictures, color printing, on and on a vivid and vibrant celebrated continuum. These turns to represent reality in living colour, echoes of our evolutionary reliance on and, indeed, privileging of colour as a complex and vital form of consumption, classification, and creation. It's everywhere we look, yet do we really know much of anything about it? Finding colour in stars and light, examining the systems of of classification that determine survival through natural selection, Studying the arrival of, arrival of colour in our new universe, and as a fulcrum for philosophy, the South's brilliant Natural History of Colour book establishes that an understanding of colour on many different levels is at the heart of learning about nature, neurobiology, individualism, even a philosophy of existence. Colour, and a fine-tuned understanding of it, is vital to our understanding ourselves and our consciousness. Well, Rob, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's a, it's a real pleasure. It's
0: great. Really nice to have you here. So, I'm going to start by asking you well, as we're living through these really unprecedented times of the global pandemic, how has it impacted you and your work?
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, since I, I worked on viruses as part of my research program, um, the research has caught up, uh, uh, kind of sped up a lot. And uh, so uh, understanding uh, what I know about viruses and and how coronavirus works has been very helpful for a couple of reasons. One, my uh, students at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City uh, work on uh, all kinds of things. But as I said, they they work on viruses too. uh, And uh, it's affected their work. Uh, secondly, it's it's affected my interaction with uh, the exhibitions and, and uh, communications team at the museum uh, because I'm uh, kind of the person who, who has the handle on viruses. I've been asked to do a lot of uh, public education and public outreach over the last uh, eight months, nine months, uh, a lot more than I usually do. So um, it's affected my work in, in, in a way pretty big way in in those contexts, but otherwise, uh, you know, working from home is not so bad. uh, I do miss the sounds of children in the halls of the museum. The museum's been closed and uh, uh, at at very, very low capacity for for visitors for the last uh, six months. So, but I do miss the sounds and the the excitement of all the kids running through the museum. That'll come back. The face-to-face interactions. Yeah, and just the sounds of, of kids' voices in the museum, um, uh, and and you know the sounds of kids having fun and running around. Um, so uh, the the uh, face-to-face interaction with my colleagues, I miss that a lot. Um, but uh, like I say, I think we're gonna we're gonna be back back in good shape soon. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point uh, you raise about uh, the sounds. Uh, Thinking about museums, they create this sort of atmosphere, don't they? Especially the big spaces you can hear from very far.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, The galleries were built to be um, kind of sound um, studios. (laughs) And and (laughs) so you oftentimes can hear from one end of a gallery to another. And as you pointed out, from gallery to gallery, and um, unfortunately, now, the, the excitement that you would hear if there were a bunch of kids in the museum, um, you know, running around the dinosaur halls or the Hall of the African Mammals or even the show that uh, um, I curated that we're going to talk about here in, in the book, um, there's lots of sounds that, that uh, you hear. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of eerie. Um, not to hear those sounds as a, as someone who's been at the museum. I've been at the museum for thirty years now, and it's kind of weird mm. not to hear all those sounds that that you usually hear when you walk in through the door.
0: Yeah, hopefully we will return back to um, normal state of affairs soon. Mm. So yeah. uh, can we uh, shall we start with um, a little bit about yourself? So mm. can you tell us a bit more about your biography and how you got interested in molecular biology? genomics and then how you became a museum curator
1: yeah yeah um i, I started out um, as a, a fruit fly biologist as a fruit fly geneticist uh, crossing flies and and uh, um, you know trying to understand the genetics of, of uh, one species and then i moved on from from those flies to another group of flies that uh, live in hawaii uh, there are a beautiful assemblage of, of flies that have just exploded with, with uh, diversity and speciation. And so there's hundreds of species there, whereas across the rest of the world, there's an equal number of species. So half the species on the planet are, of this group are in Hawaii. And that interest then led to um, interest in, in naming things and interest in, in understanding how things are related to each other And I I was very lucky to get a a curatorial uh, curatorial position at the American Museum of Natural History in 1990. So like I said, I've been at the museum for 30 years. Um, Molecular biologist at the American Museum is kind of odd, though, because we uh, look at specimens and we try to understand the whole organism. Uh, But um, the provost of the museum back then had the insight to Uh, realize that uh, genetics and how genes are um, uh, related to each other via the the organisms would be an important part of museum science. And uh, over the last 30 years, as I pointed out earlier, I've worked on everything from whales to viruses and and, uh, had just a a blast doing it, uh, mostly because I get to interact with a lot of students and and they're, they're really smart people. Uh, to, to learn from them about their interests and to be able to contribute to their work has been a real privilege during my career.
0: Were you always interested in the science communication? Because uh, you started it really, really early before it actually has become the field itself, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, so you were, know, I, I you always, always have it? I always really, really loved Stephen Jay Gould's writing and. Always really, um, although he's a very easy person to disagree with on a lot of subjects. <laughs> um, his writing and his way of communicating was just amazing. And I had the pleasure of, of uh, taking over teaching in one of his courses when uh, toward the end of his life, uh, when he uh, was teaching at NYU. Uh, he know yeah. also taught at Harvard, of course, and uh, but he was doing a lectures at, at NYU, and I had the pleasure of taking over his his lectures and the pleasure of interacting with him and figuring out how to do that do that takeover so um oh wow he's he, he his work his writing I, I think um really had a huge impact on me and and the desire to or at least the the awakening to communicate science um you know um uh, there's a lot of people who who want to do uh communication in science and um, I feel very lucky because I think the stars were <laughs> in alignment, the plants were in alignment for me to really get a, a, a good chance to do communication as a, as a curator at the museum. And it turned out that um, luckily, or I, I don't know, just serendipitously, uh, you know, genetics and genomics became a big thing at the turn of the century. And myself, along with one other curator, uh, we were the molecular biologists at the museum. So every time a non-organismal topic arose like genomics or infectious disease or uh, neurobiology or, or um, uh, gosh, uh, uh, microbiology, anytime these subjects arose as topics for a major exhibition, uh, I got tapped on the shoulder for it, which was uh, a a real, real privilege and, and a real honor to be able to, put these shows together at the museum, and to also try to communicate um, via writing and mostly via book writing. Uh, so uh, um, it, it, it's a kind of a serendipitous pathway to this, but kind of an inevitable mm-hmm. one if you uh, get a job at a museum like the American Museum.
0: Were there other mentors that uh, were inspirational to you perhaps?
1: Sure. Um, uh, My PhD advisor, uh, Alan Templeton, who's a famous fly biologist, and my PhD, or I'm sorry, postdoc advisor, Alan Wilson, who's widely uh, considered the father of modern molecular evolution, um, Mm -hmm. uh, were big influences to me. And then there's a geneticist at Harvard University who is my postdoctoral advisor, also, Dan Hartle, who's a Really wonderful uh, person and and an amazing geneticist. So I had a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good uh, background and a pretty good uh, bunch of people, kind of uh, pushing me in the right direction. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any uh, advice to our young uh, 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 and early career academic listeners, perhaps uh, uh, with the choice of the path yeah, uh, they you want know, to
1: follow? <laughs> you know <laughs> when I when I was uh, a young one. I wanted to work on narwhals um, and uh, narwhals are these really beautiful cetaceans that live in the Arctic that have these huge uh, elongated teeth that look like a, like a spear coming out of their nose. And I wanted to work on those cause I, uh, I just thought they were pretty cool. And I went to talk to one of my advisors and my advisor said, try, try to learn some genetics or, you know, uh, try to learn some physiology, and and then come back to, come back to the, um, uh, come back to the narwhals, and and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I went out and I learned the genetics, and um, I didn't come back to narwhals, but I ended up working on whales, on humpback whales, and on porpoises and other other cetaceans. And so um, the advice that I got for that was very good, and, and you know the, I, I think the advice was kind of two headed. One was, yeah, you need to learn the genetics, you need to learn something about the biology of organisms in order to specialize in one. But the other was, just be patient, you know. Uh, uh, learn as much as you can, and then when you have a good idea about something, uh, about a system, about a group of animals like narwhals, uh, or or like humpback whales, or or papillomaviruses, you know, it, when you have a good idea about any of these things, then you're really well prepared to approach them. So, uh, you know, more or less just expand your horizons and be patient.
0: That is such a crucial advice. And I'm really glad that you you mentioned it, that going into detail as well, it's so important.
1: You know, there's been a a big backlash over the last three or four decades because genomics and genetics has kind of taken over almost everything uses genomics and genetics and this whole idea of reductionism of, of re- reducing things down to genes is a bad thing um you know it's it's not good to just to do that and not know your organisms but in order to know your organisms you oftentimes have to know how its genes work or how its physiology works or how its neurobiology works so you have to really be um expansive in the way you think about things and and Um, patient in the way you you, uh, use them. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so now you're a curator at the Museum of Natural History, and we have mentioned uh, a bit of ambience in the museum where you have the sounds, but now we're going to switch to the topic of the colour, which is indeed the topic of your uh, recent book. So can you tell us how did you come to writing this book?
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, when someone writes a book, they don't know they're going to write it, <laughs> and and they're they're more or less led by the by the ear by the nose to write the book. And my work here at the museum led to um, the people here at the museum realizing that I could communicate science about molecular uh, non-organismal based things. And about four years ago at the museum, we did a did a show on the senses. And three years before that, we did a show on the brain. And so we, we have at, at the Natural History Museum, focused on neurobiology and how uh, organisms sense the world around them. That's the closest tie uh, to neurobiology that natural history has, you know, how do we as organisms sense the world around us? And so at one point during the development of the census show, which touched on all um, of the major so-called Aristotelian census, um, we realized that color was a really, really neat idea and, and neat uh, topic. And so um, three years after the census exhibition, uh, we decided to do a color, a color show. And <clears throat> usually... Uh, the way that the development of an exhibition goes, at least at the American Museum, is the curator of the show develops the narrative and develops the the main outline for the show, um, and then the writers in the exhibition department tear it up and throw it away and, and go and ha- go ahead and <laughs> do what they want. But they need to <laughs> oh, know. yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a really great process actually, and they, they need to know where where the scientific um, mind is uh, when. Uh, putting a show together and they get that from the scientists and in the process of putting that together, um, the curator, at least for me, I always end up with a great outline for a book. (laughs) And so, um, you know, the, the, the book kind of flows from the outline that I, that I delivered to the exhibitions department to put the show together. And there are a lot of similarities between the book and the show. And as, 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 uh, any, as a reader of the book would, would notice we've actually even put um photographs from the show in the book uh, and and attempted to integrate the photographs from the show into the narrative of the book. Um, so uh, um, you know it, 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 I'm sorry I can't say that it comes from a this uh, burning blazing interesting color, <laughs> but it does mm-hmm. come from a from a real interest and desire to, educate the general public about <clears throat> about a scientific topic that's really, really important in actual history.
0: And this really comes uh, through in a book, the, the clear and engaging communica- communication uh, to, of these really sort of difficult topics uh, for people. So that's what makes this book really stand out because the color, as you mentioned, it's, it's a visual. It's visual. It's uh, uh, not uh, something that you generally describe, is it?
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it's something uh, that touches on every aspect in natural history. I, I, you know, when we do a dinosaur exhibit, well, you know, maybe paleontology is the subject that's, that's touched upon by the, by the show. But color, it, it touches on um, uh, astronomy, uh, geology, physics. It touches on um, organismal biology, like invertebrate biology, invertebrate biology – and it ha- anthropology has a huge um, contextual role in understanding color. So every department in the, in the American Museum was interested in in the show, and every department was interested in how the book how the book was developed because uh, their major focus in those other departments uh, had something to do with color. Uh, and I knew that when we when we decided to do it, I knew that we had to. Uh, um, bridge all the way from the Big Bang, all the way from matter being created and then photons being created, and, and all of this other really interesting stuff that happens um, in the in the uh, cosmological world, to um, people's behaviors and beliefs, et cetera, and how we we perceive uh, and and interpret color in in modern society, and and then everything in between. <laughs> which which makes color just a, a an amazing amazing topic um even even to the point um of of challenging and going outside of 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 natural history even to the point of challenging what it means to exist even even uh to challenge what it means to perceive and to um know that you're existing uh, color is a is a is an amazingly uh, uh, Ne- neat topic to think about those kinds of things that probably you thought about when you're an undergrad in college, um, uh, sitting up late at night, so thinking about your existence and that. So uh, just a broad, broad range of of things that we could we could do here, and a broad, broad range of things that I tried to bring into the book.
0: Yes, exactly, and uh, as you mentioned, the colors is such a salient, sort of visceral topic for a visual animal uh, like like human who relies on their vision. So can you tell us why is it difficult to define and is it really easily understandable concept?
1: Um, You know, like I say, uh, color has been used by philosophers uh, for, um, I don't know, maybe 500 years, maybe even longer than that uh, to um, open up a a way to think about existence and a way to think about, um, you know, um, I think, therefore, I am. Kinds of things, uh, and that's because physically, co- color is a, a physical phenomenon. Um, color is, is of course, the the uh, perception of of wavelengths by organisms and by you know machines, whatever. Um, and uh, it's a physical thing, but because it's so ingrained in the way that we as humans think about it. Um, and, and it's so ingrained in the in the way, oops, in the way we interpret, <laughs> in the way we interpret the world around us. Um, it, it uh, has so many uh, ways that it can be viewed by people, um, uh, that it, it just opens up all kinds of uh, different ways of thinking. Um, so, f- for instance, um, there's several places where color can differ between you and i say for instance we're looking at a light of a particular wavelength and um i ask you what are you seeing and you say i'm seeing green and i'll say yeah i'm seeing green too but the overall question is is that green that you're seeing the same green that i'm seeing um uh, of course we get in the ballpark with with the physical stuff, but once once the signals get transmitted to our brains, then there there is a lot of uh, um, really neat things that happen. Memory kicks in, uh, your your cultural attitudes kick in, your your emotions kick in, uh, all kinds of things will will uh, uh, become involved, and and in the way you're perceiving and interpreting uh, the the color that. It's almost certain that the green that you might see from the very same source of light um, is not the same green that I'm seeing. So, um, uh, you know, at a physical level, it's got to be the same, but at a at a a, uh, um, emotional cultural um, uh, level, it's it's going to be very d-
0: different. Um, and that's a really excellent point uh, you put across in the book uh, so clearly that uh, the color can be defined uh, in, at different levels through physics and then going to human physiology and psychology and philosophy, and anthropology. Yeah, so there's a
1: lot. Can, there's a, I'm sorry, go
0: ahead. Uh, I was just wondering how uh, the definition of color, color between these uh, sort of disciplines differs and complements our understanding of it.
1: That's a that's a really uh, cool question. Um, I think um, physically, the definitions of color are pretty straightforward. Um, you know, uh, you can get a machine to tell you what color a, a source of light is uh, because mm-hmm. it can measure it can measure a wavelength, and that wavelength then is uh, you use a set of definitions to determine what color what color it is. Um, but as i said uh, earlier um that uh particular color when it when it gets um kind of incorporated into your thinking into your brain then gets interpreted in many many different ways uh, and so um the definition of color uh at the physical level is uh i i would say pretty straightforward but at the emotional, cultural level, it becomes really, really complex. Um, and, and that's, that's because at, at the physical level, um, we have evolved to perceive color in a particular physical way. Um, we have evolved to use uh, the rod and cone cells of our eyes to uh, capture light waves and then to send a signal to our brain saying it's this particular light wave, and then we associate that with the color. And that evolutionary process is very, very strong and very, very hard and took a very, very long time to, to, to set, set. On the other hand, our cultural notion of color uh, comes through what we commonly know as cultural evolution. Our cultural perception of what red means, or our cultural perception of what blue means, comes through uh, cultural evolution. Cultural evolution is much, much faster uh, than than uh, say uh, physical evolution uh, of of genes and populations. And that's because um, cultural evolution is not transmitted by uh, say by genes. It's transmitted more by ideas and by um, um the way we communicate with each other so there's no wonder that that the cultural context of color and the the physical context of color are really different from each other they're they're evolving under completely different pressures um with completely different um, um end end products completely different forces driving them in in the the uh, uh, natural world around us. It's
0: so actually following up on on this. So perhaps this would be a bit of a silly question, but still I'm going to ask it. So what about the transition in, in between colors? So for example, if you go from orange to red, how do you cross that line where where there's orange and when there's red? And maybe yeah. there's a cultural differences in that?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the arguments that a lot of philosophers used to challenge the the uh, reality of of color um and that's because for a couple of reasons uh one uh, is that physically uh, again if we used a machine to measure wavelengths we'd know exactly if we had a definition of what the wavelengths meant then we'd know exactly where the transition happened but because um at least let's talk about humans and comparing how they react to that transition. Um, some humans will have uh, 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 opsins, which are the proteins that are in your rods and cones that detect light, will have particular kinds of opsins, and other humans won't. And so physically, uh, at, at the very beginning, you could have a difference in how a, a human might perceive a color transition. But then, once the information gets to the brain, as I said earlier, it becomes much, much more complex, and your your capacity to, to make sense of that transition or to actually say, "Oh, it changed right there," um, it it it's diminished because uh, we we aren't we don't use those hard definitions that say a machine would use to uh, uh, count the wavelengths as they're going from one. Uh, major kind of color to another.
0: It's really, really interesting. And yes, as you said, it's really a philosophy uh,
1: part of it. Yeah, no. Um, it, sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on. No, I was just gonna say that, yeah. Um, uh, it, and it is something that we should probably be thinking about um, as an, as a, as a um, example, of how different cultures perceive different things. Now, you would not say that there's a gene involved in in the perception of red in the, in the Middle East and in uh, say Indian cultures uh, uh, versus red in Western cultures. There's a difference. There's a big difference in how uh, people in the, in those two geographic areas perceive red and and interpret red. Uh, uh, more in how they interpret red and more in what red means to them. But you would never say that that's a genetic difference. That's a cultural difference. And the, those cultural differences are becoming more and more important in understanding our differences as humans across the globe. And I think color color can be a good example uh, to uh, people thinking about this kind of thing, You know, thinking about how um, different cultures approach different things uh, uh, is an important important subject and an important way of thinking about the world uh, in, in, the, in these times. And, and uh, again, we have a perfect example of how culture affects things uh, in color. There's other things like music and other things that could be used too, but color is probably a, a really uh, important one to keep in mind when we're thinking about cultural differences.
0: And historically, does the... Availability of color differ between cultures?
1: So, For um, example,
0: dyes that are present?
1: A, yeah, that's a great question, too. Uh, up until um, recently, by recently, I mean within the last millennium, um, humans could only reproduce a certain range of colors through um, through uh, dyes uh, and, and through um, stains and things like that, through ochres and uh, charcoal for black, and and uh, the, the color range was very limited. And then, as uh, science progressed uh, in the Renaissance, and uh, humans uh, spanned the, the globe in, in uh, exploration and in conquest, um, colors uh, started to get more and more diverse. So, one of my favorite examples is is the uh, importation of, of the deep red color uh, from cochineal beetles that are found in uh, South America. Uh, that color, uh, that particular color and the availability of it to humans in Europe was unknown. And uh, the Spanish brought back this technology of making this red dye from uh, cochinellid beetles uh, so grinding them up and making a red dye from it and red became a very important color in european culture uh, same thing with with indigo um, indigo dyes from the from the east and and um, uh, the, this development of more and more colors for people to work with um, is is a very recent one and uh, you you now have um, uh, palettes of color, Um, names for all these colors and it's a it's a um, broad much much broader uh, range of colors that uh, humans deal with now than i think they did um, uh, you know even even a half a millennium ago Um, this
0: absolutely fascinating subject where the science really goes together with with the culture that the development of chemical methods to produce color really impacted the lives of uh, of people every day, what they see, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's actually gone a step further, I think, in how uh, I'm looking at my computer screen and I'm seeing colors on my computer screen and how those colors are produced. Uh, So I've got a big red dot in the upper left-hand corner. I think you might have one on your screen too because we're using the same Mm -hmm. program. But that Mm -hmm. red dot is uh, not the same as a red dot that you might see. On a painting and that's because uh, the red dot on your screen is created by pixelation and a pixel at least the red dots on our our computer screens are a combination of of uh red uh, green and blue colors and uh uh, each uh, pixel has a, a switch for those three colors and that red is actually not red, it's a combination of, of red, blue, and green in some, in some way. So um, we even have gotten to that point where, where the colors we see um, are not really the same colors as we might have seen a uh, hundred years ago, without a computer screen.
0: This is absolutely fascinating when you think about it. That every red that you see every day, it's not exactly the
1: same red. Sure, and, and, and the best way to drive that home is to is to uh, take your computer to a museum, find a Kandinsky painting, and look at look at a yellow or a blue or a red in a Kandinsky painting. Um, i'm just gonna the, look at my wall i've got on one uh, right um, here composition okay. <laughs> look at that uh, look at it on the wall if it's a painting if Kandinsky did that red ball or that red stick that he drew is not going to be the same as the red that you would see in the reproduction of the painting on your computer screen it's different it's it's physically different so um and and, and there's a case where it's actually physically different and not just different because you're um, your mind has processed some information differently than the way someone else would.
0: Okay, so let's maybe flip our perspective a little bit. <laughs> so what about what about the lack of color? So black and white, uh, thinking about the early uh, 19th century movies, for example. Mm-hmm. So is there any significance and how can you draw parallels?
1: Um, you know, the, the um, lack of color is um, something that uh, uh, psychologists have studied and and, um, uh, it's one of of, um, perception. And of course, there are a lot of people on the planet who cannot see colors and they do perfectly well with their lives. These are people who are um, uh, um, dichromatic uh, individuals, that, instead of having three ways of viewing, of, of categorizing light waves in their uh, rods and cones, they only have two. And there are even monochromatic individuals who only see uh, things in one, one shade. Um, and the, 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 the capacity to survive in black and white is, is fine. And in fact, uh, most of the mammals on this planet are dichromatic. Most of the mammals on this planet see things in black and white. It's only when you get to primates that there's a widespread trichromatic um, way of of, of viewing color. So the, the organisms can survive. Just to go back to the very basic aspect of this, organisms with dichromatic color vision can survive. But do they have the same richness of life, et cetera, et cetera? Well, maybe they do. Maybe they don't um it's it's uh, um difficult to say um and uh it's a it's um i guess one of of uh, again getting back to more of a philosophical question of um are the black and white shades that we see in in you know a classic black and white movie uh giving us the same information as and the same feeling as um a, a fully colored one I, I, can, I can point to a, a very recent example in pop culture where, where this happens. Um, there, have been, there have been several recent movies produced in black and white that are absolutely stunning in black and white. One um, well, is a Spanish um, version of Snow White. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but it's absolutely beautiful in black and white. And If it was in color, it probably would be a completely different movie. And then another uh, really interesting pop um, mention or a pop uh, reference would be The Walking Dead, the 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 uh, television series um, about uh, zombies and and uh, um, when the first uh, this was the third episode of the first season was first aired. It was aired in color, and it's perhaps one of the bloodiest, uh, grossest colored <laughs> um, episodes. in, mm-hmm television history and just recently they started to rebroadcast it in black and white and it's as terrifying if not more terrifying in black and white than it was in color Uh, because it, it it essentially uh leaves your imagination to um what is uh red or bloody or whatever um whereas the explicit coloring of the of the original version was was leading you to think oh there's tons of blood there. But uh, I I found it much more terrifying than the original color version. So black and white, um, you can communicate with it, you can survive in black and white, you can actually have uh, wonderful experiences in black and white. Um, And, you know, in fact, uh, as I said, there are there are uh, people who, who live on this planet who live in a very um dichromatic kind of a world where the colors that we uh, folks who do have uh, color vision um they live in a completely in a completely different colored world but they probably perceive it in very much the same way we do
0: it's really really interesting so what about this super perceptors some something like mantis shrimp for example that uh, uh, has a huge yeah. range of uh Uh, colors yeah
1: so so to go back and and get a little bit more into the science of of color vision um i i uh, spoke of rods and cones and and these are cells in in the retina of your eye the retina is your retina and your eye is at the back of your eye and it's a cell of million. it's a field of millions of cells and each of those cells has a protein in it called an opsin and these opsins are Tuned genetically and uh, by their structure to detect light of a certain wavelength. And then they're connected by uh, a nerve, nerve system to your brain. So if a light of a particular wavelength hits an opsin that will react to it, then it sends a message to your brain and says, in that spot in my field of vision, there's something that's red or there's something that's green or something that's blue. And um, that's how the opsins work. And so there's, there's um, as I intimated uh, uh, just a second ago, there's ways that you can increase your color vision by increasing the number of opsins. So that's what happened in the evolution of, of primates and in the evolution of other organisms on the planet. Uh, the the uh, number of opsins that are in our genome, and in the genomes of some some primates, uh, allow for three colors to be detected, three uh, colors, red, green and blue to be detected. In detected. A, a dichromatic individual, um, there's only two that are detected. Now, in some cases in humans, there'll be four uh, kinds of opsins in the in the uh, uh, um, le- in the retina. Um, and these will detect four kinds of of colors. And these are called tetrachromatic uh, individuals. Their vision is supposed to be much richer and um, uh, much sharper than, than uh, w- with respect to colors than uh, even a trichromatic is. Now, you mentioned this manned shrimp. This manned shrimp, ha- uh, some manned shrimps have 13 to 18 of these opsins. And we aren't quite sure what these opsins do or what it allows um, the, these organisms to do. Uh, with respect to color vision. But they do have this range of, of options that uh, collect light at, at wavelengths that are uh, outside of our our range of, of collecting uh, color wavelengths. So we only have a very narrow range of uh, wavelengths of light that our eyes detect, actually even just detect. Uh, once you go below... Um, 300 nanometers wavelength that's a really really tiny wavelength of a of a of a light and once you go above 700 we don't see those things because there we we simply don't have the the uh, mechanics or the mechanisms in our eyes to detect those wavelengths now there are organisms like matted shrimps or let's let's think more about um about say butterflies and and other insects with with wider ranging options, they can see into the ultraviolet. And so they can see patterns in ultraviolet color that we simply cannot see. Um, it's kind of like a, a dog being able to hear in a, 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 a range of, of sound waves that we simply can't hear. So, um, and this, again, these um, um, uh, matted shrimps. Are are uh, spectacular in the number of in their number of uh, opsins, and more than likely have these opsins as a as a uh, result of uh, some selection on their genome to to maintain these this large number of broad ranging opsins. There's another really I mean I talked about the the ultraviolet end and and organisms like butterflies and things like that uh, moths and butterflies to see. In the ultraviolet range, uh, or some organisms can actually see in the infrared range. And we can, as humans, we can see a little bit into the infrared range, a little bit more than we used to think we could. But there are organisms who can see the infrared range absolutely clearly. And I use the word see uh, uh, as kind of a placeholder for what they're actually doing. They're actually detecting um, wavelengths of light that, emanate because of heat from things. And um, these are the heat vision or night vision <laughs> kinds of things that we see in, in uh, the popular uh, media. And uh, snakes, pit vipers especially, are quite good at seeing into this range. Um, but the, the thing I'm trying to point out is that they, it, it's a stretch to call it seeing because they're not using their eyes to to process that information. They're using a a sensor in a pit, which is why they're called pit vipers, a sensor in the the pit that detects the ultra, uh, uh, um, the uh, infrared uh, wavelengths. And that interacts with the visual system of the snake to tell the snake something about what's around it. So um, we have all kinds of interesting variations and interesting ranges across which um, um, organisms can see colors on this planet and we're we're a pretty we're a pretty atypical sp- species on this planet with respect to color vision because we can see three different colors sometimes four um, most of the organisms on the planet uh, well at least most most mammals on the planet uh view the world dichromatically
0: and this loops back to the beginning of our, our conversation of what actually color is right so it's just a tiny tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum is it
1: yes and, and you know let's go back to that that pit viper um is that a color um you know uh if the pit viper decided to use um it, it, it's uh something in its nose to, to, in its nasal cavity to detect um, infrared, would that be called uh, uh, seeing color? Um, But the the thing that makes it color or seeing to the snake is that it's integrated with its normal uh, color vision in its eyes. So um, in that sense, it is seeing, um, but in in some other senses, it's it's some other in, in some other ways, it's yet another sense.
0: Interesting. So perhaps it's uh, down to sort of classification, really, of uh, what we classify. As you said, are a sense or a color? As it as, yeah. uh, as it is.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one too, because now you can you can say, well, um, my sense of of sight uh, is actually not a single sense. It's actually three senses. Uh, I can sense green. I can sense red. I can sense blue, um, and it's all a matter of how you define things and how you allow things to be broken down in your in your in your um, uh, uh, way of defining things.
0: And that again, it touches uh, something beyond the physics, uh, right? So how we perceive way it, how beyond. we sense it.
1: Way beyond, mm-hmm. and it's it's. Again, it's used by philosophers to understand consciousness, uh, to at least talk about consciousness. I mean, talking about consci- consciousness in a philosophical, um, uh, biological way is really difficult. And, you know, color is one of these things that uh, researchers have used to, as a foothold into thinking about it.
0: Especially that sometimes it's possible to see well, air quotes, the color, even when it's not uh, uh, present.
1: That's right. And, and those, are, those are very interesting. I don't know if you're re- uh, referring to color um, uh, illusions um, and, and uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, optical illusion is a version of that.
0: And also synesthesia as well. It's yeah. experience of color, which is not there really.
1: That's one thing I didn't really go into in any any detail in the book, and so anybody who's looking for it will, will more than likely be disappointed. But we do uh, I, I do touch upon it uh, uh, briefly, and it, it is a a, an, a fascinating topic synesthesia, um, but it's a bit different than um, than perceiving a light wave as something as a different color than what somebody else synesthesia is essentially perceiving a light wave at uh, one version of it is perceiving a light wave and smelling something. So um, it's, it's even more extreme of an example of, of uh, how we, how our nervous systems perceive things and then interpret things. So um, it's, a, it's a little bit different, but still a fascinating topic.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's a really, really deep topic. So uh, can we just uh, sort of uh, bring it a little bit uh, home, uh, the color itself? So now we see that color is really integral in our experience of the world and so deeply ingrained in our cultures. So how can we use color to improve our well-beings, especially during the uh, times of uh, confinement, for example? Can we somehow manipulate our surroundings and...
1: Yeah, um, there's a lot of research that's been done recently on color and mood and color and and uh, um, emotional uh, well-being. And <clears throat> um, there are certain colors that are uh, almost um, directly uh, tied to different kinds of moods. Um, one of the elements of the show that we did in New York City was a... a um, game show uh that visitors interact with and if you're worried about interacting with a computer screen we've we've thought about that and and you use your uh, smartphone to do the interaction within the exhibition it's qu- quite clever and so uh we uh do surveys of of people and you know we'll play some music uh some somber music uh you know some somber beethoven or something like that and show them a, a palette of colors and have them pick a color that that, that describes their mood and inevitably uh, a darkish blue brown black is chosen over a red yellow um green um and and this is because the mood that is that is um uh, uh, kind of stimulated by the by the music is a is a blue mood um, you can also ask, you know, string together a, a, a string of, of happy words <laughs> and the colors red, uh, the colors of uh, yellow and, and uh, bright colors are, are chosen as the, the color that describes her mood. And in fact, as, as uh, a, a reader of, of the book might notice, um, the uh, galleries in the show are theme color themed and i always remark when i walk through the show that when i go from the uh indigo part of the show where we show how indigo dyes are made and how they've been that been very important in uh cultures you step out and you walk into uh, uh, the red room which is all about how red has influenced our cultures and and your complete um uh I, I think your physiology even changes, and and when you step into the red room, you get more excited. Um, you're more uh, tense. Um, so the colors colors have a, a big effect, and in fact, these experiments that are done are uh, measure um, excitement and measure uh, uh, tension and measure other other kinds of things when you see uh, change uh, colors changing or when you go from say a blue environment to a, a red environment. Um, and in in just to kind of bring bring it back together, um, we we probably could think more about how we're using color um, when we're conveying information. And and um, neuroeconomists do this all the time. A neuroeconomist is someone who uses the study of psychology and, and neurobiology to um, uh, impact uh, Economics, it impacts selling things. And in fact, neuroeconomic, neuroeconomicists know that um, to use certain colors with certain products. <laughs> so, um, uh, the, a little known thing is that um, if you have a bottle of wine with a very colorful label on it, or a bottle of wine with a, a dark label with black lettering on it, that the wine that the person is going to choose, if those person is offered those two wines and it's the same exact wine, um, uh, they're going to choose the one with the dull black label uh, and not not the colorful label, because our psychologies our psychologies uh, don't associate um, colorfulness with with good wine, and and we instead associate these somber colors and, and serious looking colors with a serious wine. So. Um, there's lots of instances of that where neuroeconomists have have um, uh, studied those behaviors and and influenced the way that a product gets marketed and i don't see any reason why um, people who are thinking about human well-being in in these uh, you know troubled times uh, wouldn't uh, be able to use some of the neuroeconomic principles that individuals use to, to sell things, they, you know, they could probably use these principles and these ways of thinking about things to make things better for us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, color has a huge impact on uh, our, our psyche and on, on our, um, our emotional well-being, uh, certainly.
0: That's, that's really, really interesting, the neuroeconomics uh, uh, part of it. So just to round up our discussion, I'd like to ask perhaps the most obvious, but complex and uh, crucial question. And after researching this topic in depth, to you personally, what is the color?
1: <laughs> there's a great There's a great scene in, in Monty Python's The Holy Grail where uh, one of the uh, uh, ogres asks uh, the guys what their favorite color is. And if they get it wrong, they shoot up into the air and blow up. And so... <laughs> So I'm afraid to, oh, dear. <laughs> I'm afraid to say red green blue yellow I don't I don't know um, uh, you know i I, I think um, uh, well, I have my favorite color from childhood which is blue um, but I, I'm afraid that that has been kind of forced on me uh, you know I think culturally um, boys in the, who grew up in the 50s 60s and 70s were associated with were associated with the color blue um, and, you know, girls with the color pink and, and still, still in, in many ways that's that, that goes on, um, which is, is unfortunate because maybe if I hadn't been kind of pre-tuned to blue, I might like something like a pink, I might wear a pink tuxedo, you know? Um, sorry about that. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I might like pink. I might like a, you know, to, to put on a pink tuxedo every once in a while, but, um uh, I think that if you step back and, and try to figure out what your favorite color is uh, you're you're doing something really really complex and something really really interesting because you're trying to process what uh, your brain thinks are colors with something emotional uh, going on in your in your mind um, and unless you've got a pretty um, open, uh, road to that, you're probably going to go along with what uh, your culture or with what um, you're been, you've been raised to, to look at uh, as a favorite color. I don't know if that's what you're asking me about, favorite color, but uh, um, uh, 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 my favorite thing to see in all of the stuff that happens in nature is a rainbow, which, of course, has all the colors in it and some. So. Um, you know maybe it's uh, the better answer to that is uh, is lots of colors you know instead of just one one particular color.
0: Yes, exactly and uh, that's um, oh that, that that was what I meant uh, and especially the strength of this book is that it makes you think in depth what is color to you and how can you redefine it uh, knowing all of these connotations, <clears throat> excuse me the cultural phys- physical, physiological,
1: yeah, I think that's. Okay, a, I so think, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, I think that's that. That's really you, you. hit the nail on the head. What What I wanted people to come away with from the book is a is a better understanding of what color is, because color is something we we interact with every day, and color is something we interact with almost every minute of the day that our eyes are open. So I wanted people to to really. Get the sense of how wonderful that nature is, and, and how wonderful nature has been in, in molding the, the way that we view color on the planet.
0: Okay, so we've taken up a lot of your time. So can I ask what are you working on now?
1: Ah, um, I'm uh, working on a, a, a new book with my colleague Ian Tattersall, who's an anthropologist, uh, in a series of, uh, of uh, understand. It's called Understanding Blank and we're writing this book on understanding uh, race and racial concepts, so um, it's a it's a, a interesting topic and one that I uh, that Ian and I have written a lot about, um, and I think equally important in these times also.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's really timely uh, timely project, isn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Especially with with all of the um, uh, leaning leaning back um, in in my opinion, in the wrong direction, uh, more toward racism, more toward explaining our behaviors with race is such a bad thing to do. And and I I hope this this, uh, book with Ian actually uh, helps a lot of people think more clearly about uh, uh, themselves and more clearly about their relationships with other people. Sounds
0: like a really exciting project. So, what would you like your our listeners to take home with them? So, do you have a
1: well? Like, like I said, like I said, I think that uh, um, I, I didn't when I started this project. I didn't think it would would really um, be that expansive. And and um, what I didn't realize is that how uh, much we rely on color for a lot of things all the way from understanding the evolution of the universe to understanding evolution on our planet to understanding culture on our planet to understanding our behaviors and um i just would would hope that anybody who reads the book comes away with a a better feel for color not you know not a complete feel for color but a better feel for how complex it is and how much it really means um uh, uh, to us as a as an organism here on this planet
0: and where can our listeners find more information about the book and your work uh,
1: it, it's I, I believe it's it's widely available on Amazon uh, but it's also uh, f- um, you could also find it on our website at the American Museum of Natural History and you can find information on the uh, color show uh, on our website at the American Museum of Natural History you know hopefully in the next six months we'll be getting back to um, full open. And uh, at that point in time, the show will be up for another year, uh, year and a half. So uh, everyone's got a lot of time to to see the show and, um, you know, to prepare for it. You might want to uh, pick up the book.
0: Excellent. (laughs) So hopefully, yeah, (laughs) we will be back to a state of normalcy soon. Good. Okay. So thank you so much for joining me today. That was a really fascinating discussion. And I'm really hoping our listeners uh, enjoy reading the book
1: my pleasure oh, going thank out. you yeah, thank you very much <laughs>